Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For the past few weeks, we have been in a new sermon series that focuses on what biblical worship is. In today's message, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer opens God's Word to Luke 2 and gives us three important details that involve worship. When we hear Christmas songs sung during the season, we oftentimes imagine that first Christmas for Mary and Joseph and Jesus. We like to think things were quiet, silent, warm, and really nothing to worry about. As we see from scripture, things were very challenging and hard. But through it all, a Savior was born. If you're in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. Here's Heath with today's message. The book of Luke, chapter 2, the Gospel of Luke. In chapter two, now, often in Christmas time, as it as it can be, we can sing Christmas carols and really not even be contemplating what we're singing. It's just it's become so familiar; it's almost white noise to us. It's and we can just kind of click into autopilot as we sing these very familiar songs. That's why on songs like we just sang here a little bit ago, you had to think about it, didn't you? Okay, how do I sing these words with amazing grace? We were testing you. Okay. Uh, but a lot of times we can sing these songs and we're not even quite sure what it is that we're, we're singing. For instance, uh, we'll sing songs like, It Came Upon a Midnight Clear, which if you cannot read that on the screen, that's what it says. Uh, it Came Upon a Midnight Clear. Uh, you read the words of this particular song, and you don't even realize that it's not all even entirely accurate. It's not the Bible. It's a hymnal, not a Bible. Uh, it Came Upon a Midnight Clear. First of all, we don't know that the sky was clear that night. Uh, that glorious song of old, the song they're talking about is angels coming and singing the message of Jesus' birth. Did they sing it? We actually don't know that. It just says that they were praising God, uh, certainly within the lexical range of that word, but it does not say that they were singing. Then it says, uh, from angels bending near the earth to touch their harps of gold. Is there a harp of gold in your Bible? Uh, not in Luke 2. So we don't know that the angels had harps of gold, but it does paint a really beautiful picture. Uh, we, we love to see that in our nativity sets. Uh, Peace on earth, goodwill to men from heaven's all gracious king. Now it is that message from it came upon a midnight clear that we would like to focus on this morning. It's this message that came to the, from the angels to the shepherds that Christmas morning. Peace on earth and goodwill to men. From heaven's all-gracious king, the world in solemn stillness lay to hear the angels sing. Again, we don't know that they sang, and I'm willing to bet that night it was not that still. Have you ever had a baby? You ever had a newborn baby there and you're sleeping amongst the cattle? Ever done that? I'm guessing it wasn't that still, but it makes for just a beautiful picture that it was some serene, beautiful evening where everything just came together perfectly. I'm here to tell you this morning that as we study this, you're gonna see that everything didn't come together perfectly for Mary and Joseph. They did not have a flawless Christmas just because they were, if you will, Mary giving birth to the Christ child. It was a difficult time. So number one, you're gonna see here, the message came at the worst of all times. As we approach the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the story about who Jesus is and what he did, uh, interestingly enough, if you were to kind of thumb backwards from the book of Matthew and you read the last word, at least in the Hebrew Bible, the last word of the Old Testament is not a good word. It's, it's the word, uh, Hebrew word harem, which is a curse. Uh, that was God was speaking about in the, in the book of Malachi, the great and terrible day of the Lord when God was gonna come and judge the world in sin. 
And the last word that Israel had ringing in their ears from God, the last word that they heard from God, inspired by God, was the word curse. And that word continued to ring in the ears of the Jews as they suffered uh, for 400 years. God was silent to them for 400 years between the Old and New Testaments. It's not like it's just, you know, chapter one, then season two, here we go, New Testament. They had 400 years of silence. Their God had stopped talking about them, or talking to them, and the last word they heard from God is curse. And so here we are, and now the Jews are under a terrible time of, of difficulty. The, the word curse there is a word that means devoted to destruction. That's probably what they felt like. Sort of like you drive by a house that looks fallen down, it looks condemned. It's devoted to destruction. It's not fit for humans to live there. Humans won't live here again. It's not destroyed yet, but someday it will be. It's devoted to destruction. That's, that's the word that God left with them. And so now we find Israel at verse one of Luke chapter two, and something that isn't immediately obvious is the suffering and the weightiness of heart that many of the Jews have here. They're under Roman domination at this time. They're under a time that Jesus called the times of the Gentiles, when Gentiles, non-Jews, are going to be in, with, surrounding, at times controlling the Jews, all the way from Babylon until Christ returns. Well, in verse one, it says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. That word decree means that the Jews are under domination. Somebody else, not God, gets to decree something to them. It went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. It was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. So the Bible starts out with a fellow and just gives him a passing reference to a fellow of some import, Caesar. Now, he doesn't play a prominent role in the Bible, but he does play a prominent role in world history. You see, men, when we record history, we record things uh, of men and women that do significant things here on planet Earth. What you'll notice in the Bible is God's not too much concerned about the people you and I are concerned about. Who does God make much of? The people who are living for the heavenly kingdom. God sees the entire world as this, this great story of sin and redemption. That's what God is most concerned about. But We'll pause momentarily here so we understand the story. Caesar was not a name as much as it was a title. It was given only to the Roman emperor. And this particular Roman empire, emperor was not satisfied with simply the title of Caesar. He was called what in your Bible? Caesar Augustus. The august one means uh, sacred, exalted. Uh, he viewed himself, if you will, as God. And so this is this, this proud man, Caesar Augustus. We know him in history as uh, Gaius Octavius, or uh, also known as Octavian in history. But here he is taking upon himself this title, Caesar Augustus, the nephew and hand-picked successor to Julius Caesar himself. Well, this particular fellow has issued a decree, a formal declaration that the entire Roman world over which he was governing was supposed to have a census taken for the purpose of taxation. That's why some of your Bibles may say registered. Some of your Bibles may say they went there to be taxed, okay? They're both right. They went there, if you will, to be registered for the purpose of taxation. This is not a happy time for the Jews. This is not a tax they want to pay. Imagine paying your income tax, and on top of that, we have to pay, say, some other country that's dominating us. We have to pay them a tax on top of that. You wouldn't be very happy. And so this is a very depressing time to be a Jew, to be under the Roman Empire. Well, here we see a fellow 
uh, Joseph. It says, and Joseph also went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth. So the tall guy in your nativity set, uh, he was from a place called, a region called Galilee. Now, if you look at a map of Israel, this is the northern part of Israel, you'll notice that Jerusalem is way down in the south. And so Galilee wasn't regarded very highly uh, by the Jews. The Jews were very religious people, and they felt sort of the closer you were to Jerusalem, the better the place, the further away you got from Jerusalem, the further away you got from God. In fact, the Galileans were often looked down upon in such a way as they're just up there to mix it up with all these other foreign countries, and they're just here to make money. They don't even care about God. Look how far away they live from our people, okay? So the Galileans, they spoke with a thick accent, which isolated and identified them. Remember Peter standing around the fire? Little girl's like, I know you're one of Jesus' disciples. You, you, you have an accent. You talk like him. Okay, you talk like them. So they were from Galilee. But, so Galilee itself was not looked highly upon. Moreover, where he was from, the city of Nazareth, that wasn't looked highly upon, was it? Historians tell us that the city of Nazareth, well, it's not even a city, it's a village. They said there was probably maybe only two or 400 people there. That's a small place. And yet you have this man from this tiny hick town that, that even the, the Galileans looked down upon. The Galileans would ask the question of Jesus. Oh, he's from Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So nobody, even the Galileans didn't like Nazareth and the people from Judea didn't like the Galileans. And so that's where Joseph come from. He's a simple carpenter from a region that nobody looked up to, nobody respected. Well, this man Joseph is traveling to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, the Bible says here that Joseph is traveling back to Bethlehem, which is called the city of David. Now, if you've read your Old Testament much, you're scratching your head. You're like, wait a minute. Every time the city of David is mentioned in the Old Testament, it's not talking about Bethlehem. It's talking about what city? Jerusalem. Is this an error in the Bible? Is this a mistake? No, it's not, okay? In the Old Testament, the Bible referred to Jerusalem as the city of David. Uh, David captured a tower in 2 Samuel 5 from the Canaanites, and et cetera, and so the, the walled part of the city was still called the city of David. If you go to Jerusalem today, you're gonna discover there's a region of the city that they still refer to as the city of David. Uh, and so that was formally, as a title, the city of David. But here in the New Testament, it doesn't speak of Jerusalem as the city of David any longer, but rather Bethlehem. And this is not a, a title of the city as much as it is a, a description. Sort of like if you were to talk about Ashland, Kentucky, who, who, what kind of famous people came out of Ashland, Kentucky? You might say, uh, oh, you know Ashland, the home of Naomi Judd. You know, you'll, so you'll mention some famous person who grew up here in this region you know, and came out from us and sort of identifies us in some way. We like to be identified with those great people that come from us. Well, Bethlehem was identifying with, if you will, the home of David. This is where he grew up. And so he was going to Bethlehem, uh, and this is important that he be traveling to Bethlehem right now. If Joseph was gives, given the opportunity, do you think he'd be traveling to Bethlehem right now? I don't think so. What's, what's up with his, uh, his betrothed wife? She's pregnant. Are you going to go there? You, do you want to go on? Do you want to embark on a major road trip, man? Any wife who's pregnant here today? Do you want to embark on a major road trip with your wife when she's pregnant and like nine months and about to pop? You don't want to do that. And so this is, a, this is an awful time to be forced to, being travel, to, to be traveling to some great distance from your home, and yet, it, yet God in his sovereignty allowed this to happen. It's important too, why? Because if this bad thing didn't happen of Rome taking over Israel, if this bad thing didn't happen of them assessing taxes to the people, 
Jesus would have been born in Nazareth. Now, why is that a bad thing? Because Jesus, the Messiah wasn't going to be born in Nazareth. If Jesus is born in Nazareth, he's not the Messiah. So what does God do? God orchestrates world events, even through difficult circumstances, to make sure that Joseph and Mary have to be going to Bethlehem at the very moment that Jesus needs to be born. And that's important because in Micah 5.2, we have a prophecy about the Messiah. Well, how are you gonna know who he is? Well, the first thing you're gonna recognize is he's gonna be born in a certain place. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, just means fruitful. Um, it's identifying this Bethlehem from a different Bethlehem. The Bible's very specific. Okay, we want you to know it's this Bethlehem. <clears throat> he says, though you are small among the clans of Judah, Bethlehem was not some great thriving metropolis, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. Okay, Jesus, the Messiah, is going to come out of Bethlehem. He's going to be born there. And look at this, whose origins, where, was, where did Jesus originate? Mary? Was Mary, and Mary was his mother in, in a human sense, but was Jesus truly born on Christmas? No, we use the term incarnated. It's a big word that means he took on flesh. You might eat chili con carne, chili with meat. Jesus took on meat. He took on flesh at Christmas. He was not born. Jesus didn't begin to exist at Christmas. In fact, Micah 5.2 says, whose origins are from when? From old, from, wow, ancient times. In, in other words, Jesus existed from eternity past. Jesus is not some simple man. Remember, when Jesus came to earth, he's talking to the Pharisees, he says, before Abraham was, I am. I am the self-existent God who has always been. And so this is a declaration that the Messiah is not just going to be some great judge like God raised up in the Old Testament. He's going to be God. Well, so Joseph, we hear, see here, is in the lineage of David. He should be living a good life right now because Joseph, being in the lineage of David, you read through Matthew chapter, you know, chapter 1 and all that, you, the stuff that you skip, you know, and then Jehoshaphat begat Mechalel and you know, all these, these names you can't pronounce. And you skip past that. Well, this is the royal lineage. Joseph should be living a good life. What's Joseph living? He's living in a, an area that is not highly looked upon. He's living in a hick town. He speaks with an accent, and he doesn't have a lot of money. And now his betrothed wife is pregnant. This is not a good time to be Joseph. This is a difficult time. <clears throat> it says that he's betrothed. This is like a formal marriage arrangement. He's already legally married. In fact, if you were betrothed in those days, it's not like our engagement today, where if you don't like the guy, you realize, you know what, this guy really isn't that great. Have your ring back, and that's it. Back then, it required a formal divorce. You could not just walk away from a betrothal. So this woman is, if you will, legally married to this man, simply not consummated that marriage. And so this legally married woman finds herself pregnant. Is that a problem? That's a big problem because they're not going to assume uh, that God caused a baby to grow within her womb. They're going to assume that there's some kind of immorality going on. In fact, Joseph himself assumed as much and the Bible says he was minded, he had it in his mind to put her away privately. The Bible said, notices this because he had every legal right to have her stoned. Okay? This was a serious offense to break something like this, a betrothal. But Joseph was a godly man and loved her dearly, and, and the angel told him not to put her away. Well, this is the situation they're in. Their life has been scandalized. The reputation of Joseph and Mary completely tarnished. In fact, that, the tarnishment of their reputation is going to continue all the way through Jesus' life. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. Pharisees really want to dig deep and drive the knife into Jesus. What do they say? We were not born of adultery. 
And so this stigma of Mary being pregnant before the formalization of this marriage is a real stigma to them. And so here they are, God allows them to lose reputation, to allow, lose comfort. Even right now, she's about to give birth. It says, and while they were there in Bethlehem, the time came to her to give birth. Biblical proof that babies never come at convenient times, all right? You don't usually get to schedule it. Well, maybe now they do. You know, they schedule C-sections half the time. But this baby came at a really bad time, humanly speaking, but was it a good time, heavenly speaking? It was, it was the exact right time to be born in Bethlehem. And so what this means here is that Mary will not have access to, if you will, her family doctor. She won't, be, she won't have access to her personal family. She won't be in a place that's familiar and comfortable to her. Her, support, her personal support system has been ripped away. And here it says, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths. That's just strips of cloth that you would use to bind the child. Swaddling cloths, and she laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, when we talk about inns and mangers, just from our American mindset, we have a certain idea in mind, don't we? Uh, we, we have a manger scene. We have a nativity in mind. It may be, you're thinking about the nativity on your mantle. Uh, this scene here, the manger scene, a lot of times we, we think of it as some barn on a hillside far outside of town. Uh, likely, this is not the case at all. Uh, in fact, only rich people had barns that were separated from their houses. Now, you and us, you know, we have a house and we have a garage attached to our house. Most Jews back then, you raised, even if not professionally to make money, you had a certain amount of animals in your household. It was how you calculated wealth. And so they would have their house and they would have this, the living quarters. And then downhill from the house, you would have what amounts to a garage where the animals lived. And often you would be able to go over it and you'd be able to dump feed from the, the top of the house here and into these animal dishes where the animals were. Okay, so when it says that Mary was born, uh, that there was no room for Mary in the inn, uh, I don't want you to think Holiday Inn a formal public place of lodging. I've got a picture here, if we can throw it up. It's just a little black and white graphic if you have it. This, you probably can't see that too well. This is more like the floor plan of the kind of place where Mary had Jesus. So you, in the middle section, you had the large family quarters where everybody kind of stayed together. This is an average Jewish home like you would see uh, you know, there over in Israel. And then in the down below there, you would have what amounts to a garage where the animals are, where you would dump the food. That's likely where Jesus was born. Now the inn it's referring to is this back room that you see. The word for in here, there is a specific Greek term. Remember, the Bible was written in Greek, the New Testament. The original term for in did not refer to a public place of lodging. There was a Greek term you could have used for that. The Bible doesn't use that term here. Instead, it uses a term that simply means a lodging place. In fact, in Mark 14, 14, it translates this word very accurately, describing a guest room of a house because it was very common for people to stay with people, to stay with family when you come into town, just like many of you are gonna do this Christmas. And so in all likelihood, when, there, when Mary and Joseph, there was no place in the inn, the Bible is reading, there was no place for them in the lodging place. Why not? Who wouldn't make room for a pregnant woman? 
But remember, everybody is traveling back to their hometown. And so like, in all likeliness, Joseph is traveling back to where he still has family in Bethlehem. There's no room in his lodging place, in his guest room, because everybody's there right now. And she's about to give birth. And it's a little awkward to do in the middle of a living room. So we put her down here, you know, with these animals here. And they're going to wrap him in swaddling cloths and they're going to lay him in a manger. So manger is not referring to the nativity scene. A manger isn't even referring to, referring to those two before things that you see with all the hay and Jesus laying in it. Uh, that's not what their animal feeding troughs look like, actually. Uh, you want to see a picture of one. This is a, I've got a picture here if we have it in the PowerPoint, of what the manger feeding trough likely looked like. And whether we have it there or not, it's, uh, it's a hollowed out stone trough. Okay, and so uh, it was hollowed out of stone and, they, and you, would, you would throw your feed and things into that. And uh, the manger itself refers to just a feeding dish, a donkey dish. Uh, if you ever took French in high school, the word for eat, quiz, or what is it, manger, right? Manger. It, and so this is the eating dish. And this is the place where only hours earlier, the family animals have been eating and drooling over and bits of undigested food and animals doing whatever they do near the manger. And yet Mary is going to put her child, her firstborn child into this manger. That's significant because it's going to be a sign to the shepherds. Why is that a sign? Because mothers don't normally do that, especially first time mothers. I'm not gonna ask who you all are first-time mothers are. We, we can already identify you. When you drop the pacifier, what do you do? It's disposable now, isn't it? It's discarded and you have a secondary one because I'm not gonna put something in my child's mouth that was on the floor. That's child number one. Child number two, the dog gets a hold of it, it falls in the mud, two quick wipes on the pants and it's back in the kid's mouth. And that's how we do with our kids. But this, remember, is a first-time mother. And so it is a sign to you, shepherds. You know you're going to find the person we're talking about because you've got a first-time mother wrapping her kid in strips of cloth and putting her in a donkey dish. That's a sign. Okay? And so this is, not a, this is not an ideal scenario. We go into birth children today, and you know, we want special music and mood lighting. We've got you know, uh, doulas and things helping us. We have people massaging us, and we've got drugs getting pumped into our body. This is this ideal scenario to try to minimize the effect of the curse in Genesis 3. But Mary didn't have it that way. What I, the reason I'm pointing out the difficulty of the environment of the first Christmas is that we can still celebrate the news from the angelic message of good news of great joy which shall be to all people, even in the midst of difficult times. We don't have to make Christmas be perfect this year for us to enjoy this message. You may not have been able to afford all the gifts that you want to give to your kids or your mate. You, maybe you weren't able to get away and do what you always traditionally do at Christmas it may be that you've lost somebody very close to you. This, you know, this is the first Christmas without them. Or since last Christmas, you've gotten a diagnosis medically that you're like, I don't even know how I can enjoy Christmas. Like going to Disneyland on a toothache. I mean, how do you enjoy that? You know, and that's your Christmas this year. And like, I'm sorry, but I'm finding it really hard to enjoy Bing Crosby this year. Finding it really hard to watch White Christmas and Elf and all your other Christmas shows because there's something really painful and really hard in my life right now. How, how do you expect me to find joy in the middle of this message? Well, that's, it's, it's in that word joy. Happiness is based on happenings. When things go my way, I'm, I feel good inside. Joy is a recognition that bad things happen to me every day, but there's an eternal message that can't be taken away from me. I'm gonna find joy in that today. And that message hasn't changed since the days of Jesus. There is to you a child who is born this day, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And we can find joy in that. 
You're going to see, number two, that this message came to the most common of people. Verse 8 says, There was in the same region shepherds in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. You didn't necessarily raise up your children saying, you know, I hope someday this child is going to be a shepherd because what it means is he's going to be living out with animals. He's not going to make a ton of money. He's, these are not PhD scholars that are out there watching the sheep. It says that they're tending their flocks by night means they're out there. They're sleeping with the animals. Okay, so you're isolated from humans, which means you're not as socially connected. You don't know what's going on. Uh, they would have been probably viewed as crude. They're not quite as refined as the rest of us because they're not around people a lot. They're working with animals. These are tough, you know, rough hand, hardworking men. Okay, and, and yet these are the people that God comes to first. Which just goes to show us, no matter what the world thinks of you, what, is, what does God think? You're worthy enough that I sent my son to die for you and you're worthy enough I wanna get the gospel message to you. So it doesn't matter what people think of you. It doesn't matter what your occupation is. And frankly, if you've been living with animals, what do you smell like? I had a dad who raised hogs. He could go out there and work for half an hour with the pigs and come in smelling just like them. What if you lived week, you know, week in, week out with the animals? You're, you're not gonna smell that great. And despite this, God's message comes to you. The Bible, Bible says here, an angel of the Lord appeared to them. This word appeared has the idea of intentionality. God went specifically to these people. It's not like the angels just showed up, poof, where are we? Oh, we took a wrong turn back at Syria here. We got a bunch of these, these guys hanging out with animals. What are we doing here? No, God sent these, these, this angelic message specifically to the most common of men, which is important. Because in the message of Jesus' birth, we have the early message being given to the most common, average, everyday people like me. Poor kid that grew up on a farm in Iowa, riding hogs for fun. I, was, I did not grow up in great, you know, great wealth and great extravagance. And yet God appeared to me. And you know what? Later on, what else do we see in the nativity message? In the nativity, we see both shepherds, and then later on, we will see the magi, people of high class, high estate, offering expensive gifts. Both rich and poor get to come to Jesus. This is a good news of great joy, which shall be to all people. However, when the angel shows up, are they excited about it? Hey, Jimmy, look at this. Check this angel out. It says, when the glory, the angel showed and the glory of the Lord shone around them. The glory of the Lord, we, were, we talked about last week, it's, it's the radiance. It's that which radiates from God, his beauty, his glory, his, his attributes, the, the visible nature of God, the light, the shining of God is coming out here. And if you are an unholy being in the presence of something very bright like this, that's terrifying. Remember when Isaiah was in the presence of God, in Isaiah chapter six, when he's in the presence of God and the glory of God filled the temple, how does Isaiah feel about himself? Mind you, a preacher. He says, woe unto me, I'm undone. I, I, surely I'm gonna die now because my eyes have seen the glory of God. Woe is a, it's a pronouncement of divine judgment. Isaiah calls it on himself. I recognize that in my sinfulness, I deserve the judgment of God. That's a proper estimation of oneself before God. And so these shepherds had every reason to be afraid. They're surrounded by glory. It's a terrifying thing, the Bible says, to fall into the hands of a living God. If you're a sinful man, we don't casually and cavalier approach God however we wish. As a pastor, often I'll have the opportunity, the privilege of sitting with people in hospital rooms and things as they're suffering, many of them right before they die. And I just, I don't get it. Some of these folks that I've never seen before in my life, they've really never gone to church and I'll talk to them and say, yeah, when I was a little kid, yeah, I went to church, prayed a prayer. Uh, 
Never really got into God, never really into this Bible reading, never got into this prayer thing, never was really big on church. But you know, I know that when I die, I'm going to heaven because when I was a little kid, I chanted a mantra, hmm, Jesus saved me, and I know I'm all right. And I just keep thinking with just dumbfounded awe, you are placing your entire eternal existence in either a, a, of heaven, the, the presence of the glory of God, or perhaps in a place of eternal torment and suffering, a place called hell, and you're just kind of casual about it. Yeah, I don't know. It's sort of like you've you, you planned and spent a lot of money to go on an overseas trip. You know, like, did you bring your passport, honey? I don't know. It's seven, eight weeks ago. I, I think I threw it in a bag somewhere. Yeah, maybe we have it, maybe we don't. You know, this passport is your ticket in. You're not gonna be casual about it, friends. I'm just gonna approach you this morning and just gently and humbly say, if you're one of those where your testimony is like, yeah, I know, one time I went to church as a little kid, I prayed a prayer or something like that, I don't know. I, was, I, th I think I'm good with God. Would you just check your bags to make sure you have the passport. This is your ticket in, friends, and it's through Jesus Christ. This is not something that we casually, you know, approach, we casually speak of. So these men are terribly afraid, and the angel has to tell them, fear not, don't be afraid, I'm not here to judge you this time. Remember, some angels do come in judgment, the death angel, right, at the, at the, the time when God, over the Passover, and he kills all of those where the blood of the lamb was not covering them, and they died, he says, I'm not coming to judge you right now. Instead, he says, instead of judgment, I'm going to bring you good, uh, good news of great joy that will be for all people. It's such a lovely message. It's, it's good news. It's the, where we get the word evangelism. You know, the word evangelism itself refers to good news, that when we share the gospel of who Jesus is, that he died for sinners like me and like you. We're not, we're not shoving a religion down people's throats. We're not, we're not irritating them, we're not annoying them, or as we always say, when you get together for the holidays, never talk about a religion and politics. That's because we have this idea that it, it's divisive and it's, it's awful, and you're really, you're really bringing down the mood of the Christmas if you do this. Can I argue that you are actually giving them the greatest gift possible in sharing the gospel this Christmas holiday because this is a message of good news. You're not offering them something bad. You're not offering them something that isn't good for them, that is, that is unwelcome. This is something that is a beautiful message of good news of, that will bring them what? Great joy. Your life may stink right now. Sometimes our lives stink, and it's okay to acknowledge that. Yet God offers us joy. And it's not just for a select few people. It's, it's available, if you will, for all. This is a good news for all people. And he tells them, for, okay, this is the good news, this is the good message. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Those three terms are what you need to know about who Jesus is to be saved. Jesus, the word itself, means that our God saves, okay? The word Jesus itself means that he is a Savior. Okay, so we have to understand that Jesus is a Savior to be born again. What does the word Savior imply? That you need rescued. Do you need rescued today? I do. But that's, that in, right there is the offensive message to people because there's a lot of people out there in the world who feel like, I don't need rescued, I can take care of myself. I'm gonna get to heaven because I'm a pretty good person. I've done all right. I, I came to, after all, I came to Christmas Eve service. You know, who else would do that? Obviously only a holy individual. Is that what it, is that what it takes though, to be, to be born again, that I'm just a good person? Well, Galatians 2.16 tells us that no flesh will be justified, declared righteous by God, declared not guilty by God because of the works of the law, the, you know, obeying God's word. 
Nobody's gonna get before God and God's gonna say, wow, that Jamie Lester, what a paragon of virtue and, and righteousness. You know, I was going to send Jesus for him, didn't need to, because Jamie was just that good. Now, you all know Jamie, so you know that's not true. Okay. And so, but the truth is, it, it doesn't work for Jamie, it doesn't work for any of us. None of us are gonna stand before God and say, well, I'm here. Let the applause begin. I, I've done all that God requires. Instead, we have to come in great humility and acknowledge there's nothing in me. Like Paul said, Paul the apostle who wrote most of the New Testament, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. And so there's this acknowledgement that I need God. Savior implies that you're guilty. Men, you ever try that with your wife? You get in a fight with her, and before she apologizes, you tell her, I forgive you. Any of you men ever try that? Just raise your hand. I see that crippled hand, that crippled hand. You don't do that, do you? Because what are you doing? You're implying guilt. So for God to tell the shepherds, I'm sending you a savior is implying guilt. Are we guilty before God? Yes, all have sinned, the Bible says, Romans 3.23, we fall short of God's glory. We've done wrong things and we deserve punishment for that. Well, the angel also calls Jesus not only a savior, but he calls him the Christ, which I found out later as a child is not Jesus' last name. Is that a revelation to anybody here? Christ is a title, like Caesar was to Octavian. <clears throat> the word Christ is a title. He's, he's the Messiah. He's the one that in this big, thick Old Testament section, the clean section of your Bible that you barely open up to and you have to unstick the gilded pages when you read it, that Old Testament, there's over 300 prophecies about Jesus. How are you going to identify the Messiah when he comes? God didn't leave it as a mystery. There's 300 prophecies about Jesus and, and who he will be and how we will recognize him, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, all of that. It's right there in the Old Testament. Prophesied hundreds, even thousands of years before Jesus came, and it's all right here so that when the Messiah comes, you can line him up and go, ah, that's our guy. A mathematician once offered the probability of Jesus fulfilling even eight of these, of these messianic prophecies. And he said the odds of fulfilling even eight of these prophecies found in the Old Testament, it's just a big number, okay? Let's take a big number to begin with, a quadrillion. Do you measure anything in quadrillions, any of you, your income, perhaps the national debt someday? Uh, quadrillion is one with 15 zeros after it. That's a big number. The odds of Jesus fulfilling this prophecy is one with 17 zeros after it would look something like this. And that's hard for us to imagine. So the same guy said, imagine if I took silver dollars, kids, silver dollars, okay. We used to collect them when I was a kid. We don't use silver dollars anymore. About this big, these, these big old coins. And silver dollars, you, get, you collect this many of those coins. He says it would fill the state of Texas about two feet deep. Okay. He says, now I want you to send one guy randomly in there with a Sharpie marker, right? And you're gonna put a big X on both sides of one of those coins. You're gonna chuck it in there and then we're gonna drive bulldozers through there. Okay, we're gonna, we're gonna mix it up all over the state of Texas for weeks at a time. And then we're going to just airdrop some guy who's blindfolded into Texas and say, wander in any direction as far as you want. And then randomly just dig deep at your ankles and pull out one silver dollar. The odds of Jesus fulfilling eight of these prophecies is that, and this guy going into Texas and picking out the one with the X. I.e., it's impossible to fulfill all eight and not be the Messiah. Yet Jesus didn't just fulfill eight, did he? How many prophecies? 300, 300 plus. In other words, this is the man, this is the one from the Old Testament that we've been waiting for. 
But the Bible also recognizes in this angelic message, he's not only Jesus, your savior, he's not only the Christ from the Old Testament, but he's also the Lord. He's not a simple man, he's not just a good teacher, he's not just a good example, he's not just a great prophet. You're not, you're not honoring Jesus by giving him these lesser titles alone. Instead, in fact, for all of us to be born again, we have to come to a place where we acknowledge Jesus' lordship. We don't say, I'll take Jesus as savior, I'll even accept him as Messiah, but he's not my Lord. Okay? That person is not born again. In fact, Romans 10, 9, how do we get saved? If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Okay? That Jesus who saves, he's the Lord. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. No clearer words of how to be saved probably in all the Bible. We acknowledge what Jesus did. We believe the Bible account that he came, he lived the perfect life, he died on the cross because it was for my sins and not his. And in so doing, I, I trust that message to the place where I'm willing to entrust my life to him as a Lord. I'm willing to allow him to be, make me born again, to change my life entirely. And there's a lot of us who haven't made that distance between the head and the heart yet. We believe, oh yeah, Jesus, yeah, he's God. I believe he existed in time and space. Strong guy, good example, powerful fellow, good things, I believe in that. But in their heart, they have not, they're not willing to trust him as Lord. They're not gonna obey him. They're not gonna follow him. They're not gonna worship him. He's just some guy that I believe about. Like I believe that there was a man named Julius Caesar. I believe there was a man named Abraham Lincoln did great things. As Lord, it means I'm entrusting my, my, the weight of my entire life and my future upon this fellow. You know, in 1859, there wasn't a lot to do in 1859, didn't have the internet, no TV, uh, not a lot of entertaining things to do. And so what you do is you get these fellows who go out there and they do some great feat of strength. Everybody comes out to see it because what else are you gonna do? It's 1859. And so you come out to this guy and this one tightrope walker was gonna go over Niagara Falls, a guy named Charles Blondin. And so you do that once and everyone's like, wow, and just raptured amazement. How can this guy do this? Right, and so, uh, but then he's gonna do it again. You gotta get the crowd, so what do you do? You gotta up the ante a little bit. So what are you gonna do if you're a tightrope walker? Uh, and so he went over Niagara Falls on a tightrope in a gunny sack one time. I'd love to see that. Uh, he went over on stilts on a tightrope across Niagara Falls one time. And he just kept upping it. He rode a bicycle, you know, like blindfolded on this tightrope. Oh, this guy really wanted to die. And he, he does this over and over and over, and then eventually he's, he came up with some great new trick, and he gathers this huge crowd, and everybody wants to see what old Chuck is gonna do over Niagara Falls this time. And this time he says, I brought myself a wheelbarrow, okay? And I'm gonna take a wheelbarrow across, and I'm going to push somebody else in it. So now it, it offers you know, something I can't control and I can't predict, somebody else shifting their weight in that wheelbarrow. And everyone's like, do you think I can do this? Ah, yeah, you can do it, Charles, you're the greatest. Go, Chuck. It, and then he offers, I want to do it with one of you. Who from you from the crowd would like to volunteer for this job of getting in a wheelbarrow? Anybody want to guess how many volunteers he had that day? Zero, exactly none. You see, everybody wanted to trust Charles from a distance where he doesn't change my life. He simply entertains me. I like being around Charles. I like to see what Charles does, but I won't trust him with my life. I will not uh, just lay the entire weight of my existence in the power of his hands. This is what it means to trust in Jesus as Lord. It's not simply that we like to be around Jesus. He entertains me. I like hearing things about him from time to time. Um, I have certain knowledge that I believe and understand, but it's, it's a full weight of confidence in Jesus such that you're willing to trust not only your eternal future to him, but even today. 
I'm willing to live obediently to Jesus. In fact, uh, the Bible tells us that, uh, that it, you know, who is it that, that loves me? Is he who loves me will keep my commandments. I'm willing to entrust my entire life to him. Well, Luke 2.13 says, and suddenly there was with the angel, there was just one, they were terrified of one. What are you gonna do with a multitude? And there was with this angel a multitude of the heavenly host. A multitude is a number you can't even count. And, and they're all praising God at the same time saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So they're worshiping God, glory to God. We're gonna glorify God. He is the greatest. We don't deserve glory, he does. And it says in the highest way. Okay, so only God is worthy of glory. We, we don't need to worry about whether or not people think highly of us, whether they glorify me, whether my reputation is great. Joseph and Mary's reputation was tarnished. All we gotta worry about is God's children, is, is God being glorified? Do people think highly of our God? And so this is the message of the angels, beautiful in their own right, but they say glory to God in the highest. Interesting as we see this, this is a common Jewish, what we call a doxology. It comes from the word doxa, which means an opinion. It's what the word that, the Greek term for glorify. Okay? And so this is a popular Jewish phrase to glorify God, Luke 19, 38. It's what they're going to apply to Jesus one day. A triumphal entry. You know, right before they crucify him, the crowd is a fickle crowd. And they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So here this peace and glory in the highest uh, formula is, is given to us again. And an angel continues, he says, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is probably the most misunderstood part of the Christmas message. And on earth, peace, goodwill toward all men. And a lot of times we just pause there and say, isn't this great? I love this Christmas message. Peace to everybody, goodwill to everybody, have a cookie, let's sing carols, let's just have fun, it's Christmas after all. And we kind of take this angelic proclamation as just sort of a giant worldwide blessing. Yeah, your life stinks, but this time of year we're all just gonna be at peace with each other and happy and... Is that what this means? Well, the fact that I've asked the question means it isn't. So let's figure out what this means. The peace of this message is the peace that a savior brings to mankind. It's the peace of Romans 5, verse 1. It says, therefore, since we have been justified, remember that word, declared righteous, not guilty? We've been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The peace he's talking about here is the peace that we have with God, not the peace we have with man. Okay? And that peace that we have from God implies that at one time we were at war with God. Is that a fair statement? That in sin, God was angry at our sin, that we were enemies of God at one time, but Jesus offered us terms of peace. That's exactly what this means. In fact, if you read Colossians 1.21, it says, you were once alienated from God. You were separated from him. You were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. And so when we, we always like to say things like, you know, God loves the sin, or loves the sinner but hates the sin. We love to just, we, we ballpark on that, that phrase. We love this. Uh, a great, great word from a theologian named R.C. Sproul. He says, don't rejoice so much that God loves the sinner and hates the sin. It's the sinner he sends to hell. Okay, so we were at once enemies of God through our evil deeds. That's how you can tell, by the way, that you're an enemy of God. You live persistently, habitually, continually in a sinful state, and it doesn't bother you. That means that you are in a state of being an enemy of God, and we need the peace that Jesus Christ brings. 
So it's not that you went to church growing up as a kid. It's not that you prayed a prayer. It's not even that you're here today. God loves that you're here. But this doesn't save you. The greatest evidence that you're a child of God is that you've been born again. You change. You look different. I have a grandkid with me here this morning, and he looks a lot like his mommy and daddy. Why? Because the DNA is in there. How do we know that you are truly a child of God? Because the DNA is in there. You look more and more like your daddy, okay? You look more and more like Jesus. You act like him. You love what he loves. You behave as he behaves. You don't do it to get saved, but friends, if you have the DNA of God in you, you're gonna bear a family resemblance. If that's not there, you need to really question whether or not this little thing that I chanted as a six-year-old boy or girl really had any efficacy at all because the evidence is in the fact that we look more and more like him. And so he says, uh, <clears throat> uh, glory to God in the highest, he says, and on earth peace amongst those with whom he is pleased. Who is God at peace with? Everybody? No, it's with those whom he is pleased. There's a qualifier on this to whom we have peace, you know, who has peace with God. How do we know that we are at peace with God, that God is pleased with me? John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. You see, God doesn't teach universalism that everybody's going to heaven. Now, I realize at funerals, it feels very comforting to just immediately say, this person's in a better place. Are they? I don't know. If they knew Jesus, they are. If they, have, if, if they just kind of had some sham profession of Jesus as a kid, they lived their life completely for themselves. Friends, I don't feel confident in saying that that person's in a better place. In fact, the Bible in Matthew chapter seven, talking about the, the kingdom of God and the, great, and the Sermon on the Mount, the Bible describes that every man is on one path or another. There's no middle path, there's two paths. There's a wide gate, the Bible said, that leads to destruction, that goes to hell. It's described as wide because it's simple, it's easy. If you don't do anything in life, you're just gonna flow naturally down this path to destruction. And the Bible says that's the path that most people are on. So most of the funerals, statistically speaking, that we attend as a, as a human on earth, most of the funerals we attend are not for people who are in a better place. Most of the funerals that we attend as humans on planet Earth are for people who are on the wide path. How does the Bible describe the path that leads to life? Narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way. You have to deny, you know, through this path that Jesus called you to, to follow his path, there's persecution, there's suffering, there's difficulty, there's self-denial. It's a difficult path. He says, and there's few that find it. Friends, I just want to ask you this morning, have you found that path? Which path are you on? If your life is just easy and you're breezing through life and you're not ever having to deny your flesh and you're not ever going through difficulty and suffering on behalf of Jesus, it may be very well that we're on a wide path today. Doesn't matter what you've been in church as a kid. And we've got to examine our hearts for that. Well, this is an important enough message that number three, the message demands an immediate response. Verse 15, it says, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go. Let's act on this. Hey, we have this great message from God. Let's not just talk about it. Let's do something with this message. He said, let's go. And let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And it says they went with haste. Okay, they were like, not only did they go, they're like, let's get up, go, up, up, time to go. Let's go, let's go. It's, it's too important a message. You can't ignore it. It's like when I was a kid, I grew up in Iowa, you know? It's flat, there's no humans there, there's no buildings there, there's no vegetation there other than plants, you know? And when that all comes down, these tornadoes will rip through Iowa. And I remember as a kid, all of a sudden, without any warning, you see the sky turn yellow. You ever been in a tornado? 
Sky turns yellow and all of a sudden you hear, you hear these noise, you know, oh, okay, there's something going on. Or you'll hear the tornado sirens kick on and we don't wait and go, you know what, but I'm, I'm gonna finish with my, uh, my chamomile tea here on the porch. You're running to the basement. You're making haste because the message is too important and the implications of delaying that message are too important. You run to the basement with your transistor radio and you wait out the storm. This message that the angels gave them was too great a message to sit on. And so they said, we need to go. Uh, and so they, are, they said, let's go make haste to find Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And so the reason I talk about haste, making a, a, a decision for Christ and not delaying it is, if, if you're one of these who has, where your search for Jesus was not an impassioned search, I must have him. I must know that I'm born again. I must know God. I must know that my eternity is secured. If that was not your experience, but your experience was more somebody coerced you, they're like, no, 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 you really need this. Okay, fine, fine, I'll pray the prayer. I'll pray the prayer. Yeah, okay, let's, let's go. Baptized, okay, fine, I'll go through it. You know, it, but it, it never changed your life. Your search for Jesus wasn't an impassioned search for God. Friends, can I tell you, put some weight on your conversion today. Give it some thought. Did I really believe? Because those, when you come to an awareness of the great destruction that lay ahead and the great salvation that is offered by Jesus, there's a sense of urgency in your heart. I need to do something about this right now. And if, that, if you've never been in a place in your life where you had this great urgency, this longing, this desire, this impassioned drive for God, friends, I would question whether or not you really understood what you were making a decision for. Jesus in Matthew 7, closing out the Sermon on the Mount, talking about the kingdom of heaven, says it's something that we ask about. Ask and you will receive. You know, seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. So there's a progression of desperation there. You're kind of asking around, hey, you know, what, what is this? You know, what is this about? And pretty soon you're seeking. I've got to find this. I've got to find this. And then, you know, you get to the door and you're banging on the door. Like people on the ark door as the, the judgments of rain are coming down upon Noah and, and all the nations of the earth. And you're beating on the door. I've got to get in. That is the Christian experience of coming to faith in Christ. There's a desperation. That was how I came to Christ. I didn't casually come to Jesus. I was banging down the doors of heaven every night, begging God in tears to give me some kind of assurance and confidence that my future was secure in Christ. I've told you this story before, but in my conversion, I just couldn't find that peace. I remember asking family members, they couldn't quite give me that assurance that I was born again, and so I went to the church, to the old track rack. Remember the old-fashioned churches? And, and they had like this track rack, all these little pieces of paper that tell you about Jesus. And we had a robust one. I mean, it was like a billboard of tracks. Uh, and, and it was like 10 across and like five high. And I just remember as a kid staring up to it going, wow, this is a lot. Uh, and I'd look at the back of a track and I'd see this one has a prayer. Because at the time, I thought it was the prayer that saved you. This one has a prayer, so I took it and I took the other one. This one has a prayer, this one has a prayer, this one has a prayer. And I took every one of them. I hesitated at one of them, right? Because it said, are you pregnant? But you know, I took it. I prayed the pregnant woman's prayer for salvation. That's when, as a young boy, you know you're desperate. I don't, I don't have a baby, never planned to, but if there's a message of hope in Jesus here, I'm gonna take it. And so I was desperate for God. I prayed every one of those prayers. I prayed the same prayer probably 50 times, but you know, my confidence that I'm a child of God isn't in the fact that I prayed a prayer, that I recited a mantra, and God is like, wow. Open sesame, you got the password. Welcome in, you found the secret password. It's not about praying a prayer. It's not about walking an aisle. That's not your confidence. 
Your confidence is in that Jesus died for you, that you have received him by faith. We proclaim that faith there in a baptistry publicly. I'm not ashamed of Jesus. This is real to me. I was buried with Jesus, participated in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Friends, that's what we can look back to. Is the li- and then the life change that resulted. So they went with haste, and they said, it says when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning the child. So the first natural response of receiving the good news of a gospel message is what? I gotta tell somebody about this. Evangelism is not the unusual work of a Christian, it's the natural work of a converted person. That we, knowing what we know, have this sense in which, I can't keep this to myself. I gotta share this with somebody. And that's what they did. It says in verse 18, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It's interesting. It says, all who heard it. I would submit to you that this all isn't just Mary and Joseph, but it's the people within the household of Joseph's family who are listening in with Mary and Joseph. And then the Bible mentions Mary's response, that when she hears the gospel message, her her heart ponders that as a child of God, there's a great desire to know God, to know him through his word, to ponder these things of God. And then these shepherds, what was their response to the gospel message? They went home from proclaiming this message and what were they doing? Rejoicing and praising God. Okay, these are all present active participles, English majors, okay? This is something that they are continually, habitually doing. This is something they're just, they can't stop talking about God. God has radically transformed their life into something, from something old into something new, something that was dead to something that was alive. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man be in Christ, what happens? He is a new creation. Old things are passed away, all things are becoming new. Is that the experience of your life? that when you met Jesus, it was not a casual encounter, just some flippant prayer I did as a kid, and now I'm good, I've kind of lived my life myself. I'm not really into church, never really been a church guy, never been a Bible guy, never been a prayer guy, never really been a worship guy, certainly don't raise my hand. I'm not that guy. i just someone who prayed a prayer as a kid, and I hope it's good enough, I hope it gets me in, I hope that passport's still valid. Friends, I pray that there was a desperate moment where you sought for God, and if you have not had that moment of desperation for Jesus, that you would find him here this morning. The Christmas message that Jesus has come from eternity past to come and dwell in the form of a human so that he could die in our place is a message that demands an immediate response. And if there is not a sense of urgency in your heart, friends, I would submit that you're either already born again or that you're not born again at all. Give it some weight. The message of Christmas is too great a message to put off. Don't just, don't just look at the, the gifts and the songs and the music and the parties and the movies of Christmas. Would you just this morning ponder the angelic message today, unto you is born the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. That message demands an immediate response. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today as we study your word as we just contemplate all that it means to be a child of God, all that it means to celebrate this message of Christmas, to remember what Jesus did for us, this message that was proclaimed that he came to earth and he lived the perfect life that we could not, that when he died on the cross, it certainly was not for his own sins. He was not guilty, but we were. And you laid upon him, the Bible says, the iniquity, the sins of us all. But that forgiveness is only applied to us when we believe the gospel message by faith 
and we trust in him as Savior, Christ, and Lord. God, I pray if there's anybody here today who has just come here maybe because family invited them, maybe you've stumbled in off the street because you just weren't sure where to go this Christmas, that you would put weight on your conversion story. God, help us not to just rest in a casual encounter as a child, but to really pause and contemplate whether or not my sins are forgiven, that I'm a converted child of God, that I bear a striking resemblance increasingly so to my Father who's in heaven. And God, if there's any here today who does not have that assurance, Lord, would you not give them peace in their heart to leave? Would you help them stay and remain and have a conversation with us that this Christmas might be a a true season of rejoicing and like the shepherds, a season of worship? We ask this in Christ's name. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, may we do as Psalm 119.10 says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments.